In this audio version of Foresight Space Seminar, Casey Hanmer explores the hurdles that make Mars such a challenging destination and offers an insider's perspective on our journey towards making human life sustainable on Mars. You can apply to join the seminars live on foresight.org. This is also where you can find the slides to the video recording of the seminar. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Foresight's Space Group, chaired by Kwian and Levitt, who will be joining us in a second. And we're delighted to today have Casey Hammer here. Uh, I ran into Casey at a road mapping workshop hosted by Ben Reinhardt from Speculative Technologies. And we swiftly got started uh, speaking uh, space and uh, energy and all the other things that Casey has collected and curated on his blog over the past few years. It is an entire treasure trove. I think whenever people are just like, okay, what's the kind of like out there kind of progress oriented deep and hard tech focused like medium to think about more material science, energy, space related stuff. I usually guide them to your blog. Uh, you showed me a really wonderful post on like mapping different time windows in which we can get to Mars and what that means for how late we are and, and so forth. So lots of really interesting stuff on their blog and we're really delighted to have you here today and uh, to share a little bit more about what you're working on, what you're thinking about. Thank you so much uh, for joining this group. Um, I'll be also monitoring questions in the chat. I'll share more info about you in the chat as well that people can read up on. But for now, I'm really delighted to have you here. Thanks a lot for joining. It's been a long time coming. Thank you so much, Alison, for that um, lovely introduction. I'm super excited to speak about space stuff. I've been a massive space nerd since forever. I'm hoping Creole shows up at some point to, to be my foil. But <clears throat> I guess I can start out by, by dropping a link in the chat to, to the aforementioned what's called pork chop plot basically shows uh, the times of, of year over the next 10 or 20 years where you are able to, to, to travel to Mars and from Mars. Why don't you okay. talk us through it a little bit? Because I, I've seen this map before and I still have to think twice about what what means. And some people well, may have seen it the first time. So what got you, what prompted you to create this map and what does this map show? Well, it's like that old joke about, uh, you know, Git gets easy to understand what's you understand it. It's like a, a holomorphic projection of endofunctive. Uh, essentially, a pork chop plot is so named because the features on the plot look like pork, pork chops. That's the super secret thing. Basically, what this graph shows is when Mars and Earth are in the right position relative to one another to enable relatively cheap transport from one planet to the other by what's called a home and low energy transfer. And I really encourage people to, to Google this a little bit if they need more detail. But if you've played Kimmel Space Program, this will all be uh, quite familiar. But, it, but in any case, in this graph, what we have is actually two graphs, one, one on top of the other. And the graph on the top shows the launch windows that you can exploit to travel from Earth to Mars. And in fact, employing a, a little neat trick called free return, which means that if you decide not to land on Mars, you go back to Earth uh, instead of just flying around in space forever. And then on the lower chart, we have Mars to Earth. So basically, what, what types of year you should leave Mars and travel back to Earth. And so the, the horizontal axis is date, which above the axis is given in Earth years and below the axis is given in Mars years. Of course, Mars years are about twice as long as Earth years. And then the vertical axis is, is travel time or time of flight. And so it is reasonable to expect that if you are transporting humans and or cargo to Mars, you may want to minimize the amount of time in flight, but you also want to maximize the amount of stuff you can take for a given amount of fuel expended. And so in practice, what that means is that to take, for example, in 2024, there is a launch window to Mars. It's in fact the next launch window that we can use. And, and that in that window, we can actually launch in roughly this time, actually next year, November-ish, November, December next year. And, uh, and actually you have a choice then. If you would like to get to Mars quickly, 
then you can go in the lower of the two blue dots there above the horizontal axis at about 2024, 2025. And there's certain advantages to doing that. And then if you want to go slowly, you can go to the upper blue dot and then you can follow the diagonal gray line down to the horizontal axis that tells you when you arrive. The reason it's interesting is if you're potentially considering starting an airline that will fly people to and from Mars, uh, you want to maximize the utilization of your spacecraft. And if you were to launch through it, for example, at this launch window and then arrive on Mars roughly March or April 2025, you may be then interested to know what it would take to take people and your spacecraft from Mars back to Earth that year. So for example, that's at that time of year is, is actually very close to the end of the launch window, which you can launch stuff from, from Mars back to Earth in that kind of green area directly above, say, you know, third process in the first quarter, 2025. But then that would get you back to Earth towards the end of 2025. And then you would have a year or so on the ground or in orbit of Earth to re- reload, refit, fix stuff, do whatever has to be done to get ready for the next launch window. And of course, if you were to miss the return launch window, then you could stay on Mars for a year and a half and then fly back to Earth at the next launch window at a more favorable time. But then that would get you back to Earth too late to take advantage of that same Earth Mars launch window. So like there's a tricky situation. And and actually when I did this chart, I was quite preoccupied with figuring out how to do this because at the time SpaceX was talking about building composite starships and it was going to be extremely expensive and time consuming to build these starships. And so you'd want to make sure you use them as much as possible. But since then they very wisely, in my view, switched to stainless steel. And I think their approach now is we will simply mass produce tens of thousands of starships. And sure, some of them will come back when people want to come back, but we will not have to get the starship back. And one way of thinking about this is that if you need a marginal starship, if you need one more starship, is it easier to take a fully functional starship on Mars and fly it back to Earth? Or is it easier to take your fully functional starship factory on Earth and produce one additional starship? And I think the answer to that should be intuitively obvious to anyone who's part of this meeting. And the answer is just to, to swamp the world with starships. It's always easier just to produce more stuff. Certain advantages to producing things on Earth, such as the availability of oxygen and power and a, a labor force and a supply chain. This simply does not exist on Mars. Wonderful. Thanks for that and like swapping very visual intro. We also have Creon now and Creon, yes. you're free to take over any time to really like to need oh, to dive, dive in a little more like why Mars is actually hard. All right. <laughs> Let him keep going because he's obviously got some great wishbone charts and all these other wonderful things that I haven't seen in a while. And uh, these are beautiful, by the way. And uh, keep it, Thank keep you. going. I'll accumulate some questions to start the discussion once you're done. And my okay, apologies so, for being late. So I guess I started out, I wrote a book. I'll leave a link to it uh, here in the chat. You can actually get it on Amazon as well if you Google around a bit. And it's called How to Get to Earth from Mars, Solving the Hard Part First. So actually, this is topical right now because Mars Sample Return, which is a NASA mission to launch stuff from from Mars back to Earth, in particular, like a couple of small samples of rock about the size of my finger, is currently in in deep trouble. And and that's because the basically independent review board found that it would cost $10 billion with a B to to launch this this sample cam, which is about the size of my hand, from Mars back to Earth. And while there's definitely scientific reason to make this happen. And it's certainly the case that the United States is astonishingly wealthy and could easily afford to spend $10 billion on a handful of Mars rocks if it so choose. It is also the case that nothing like this technology or that spend rate will get us anywhere near having humans on Mars. And in particular, if you want to put humans on Mars, it, it may be the case that you want to get humans back from Mars at some point. And, and really at the time in, in 2015 or 2016, when I first this book, I just put a link to, it's actually quite a short book. It's about 12,000 words. It will not take you a long time to read it. It just seemed to me that most of the conversation about going to Mars was preoccupied with Details of software didn't really matter all that much. Oh no, like how are we going to recycle the poo? Or life support systems seem hard or something. But actually, overwhelmingly, the hardest thing about building a city on Mars is getting to and in particular from Mars. Uh, and the reason it's, it's somewhat easier to get to Mars, even though Earth is quite a bit bigger than Mars, is that there are rocket factories on Earth and there are no rocket factories on Mars. Getting back from Mars 
actually Mars is small enough that you can fly back in a single stage. And in particular, Starship is the rocket that is designed to do this. But that does not make it easy. As a matter of fact, it's still extremely difficult because when Mars arrives, sorry, when Starship arrives on Mars, it is empty and needs to be refueled. And there's just no fuel available on Mars. You have to make it from the atmosphere using a chemical process uh, called in-situ resource utilization, which actually I happen to be in my office here in Burbank, California, developing technology to do exactly that here on Earth. No price for guessing why. So I wrote this book talking about all these different things and explaining, at least in my view and according to my calculations, and as a physicist, of course, I think I can do anything, why the various things that people, even today, some very well-known writers recently published a book on the difficulties of building cities on Mars, which no doubt some of you will have read. And in my view, that book focused overly on legal, legalistic aspects, human factors aspects, and just like aesthetic aspects of the challenge. Whereas for me, as a technical person, I'm much more interested in the technical aspects. I was getting into the, into the nuts and bolts. And of course... My book is not exactly the sort of book that flies off shelves at Christmas time, uh, but for certain kinds of technically minded people, I, I've, I've been told it's quite interesting. So uh, in that book, I talk about all the sort of stuff we just talked about. I talk about radiation, uh, why it's not such a big deal. I talk about magnetic fields on Mars. I talk about getting from Mars orbit down to the surface of Mars and how hard that is with entry, descent, and landing, which is, of course, what NASA has, has become so good at and what JPL has become so good at doing with their rovers. But those rovers are quite a bit smaller than craft that could possibly carry humans. And then why getting from the surface of Mars back to Earth is, is actually far, far more difficult, probably a thousand times more difficult. It's really it's a real head scratcher. And I'm happy to go into some, some more detail there if, if people are true, I'm particularly curious. Uh, yeah, about resources. I have a, a question right off the bat on that. Uh, yes, of course. We discuss it. Getting from Mars back to Earth is much more difficult. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it, because we don't have infrastructure on Mars, it, give it for a given rocket, yes, right. the amount of propellant, it's actually easier to get back to Earth from Mars than it is to get from Earth to Mars. Well, so if you're looking at a Delta V map, uh, and, and actually that chart that I that had contains information about Delta V, it is certainly the case that the amount of Delta V, which is essentially the amount of rocket fuel that you need to get from Mars back to Earth is quite a bit less than it is to get from Earth to Mars, or even from low Earth orbit to Mars. Mm. As one said, actually, is low Earth orbit to Mars. But it is certainly the case that you know, there's no ground support equipment on Mars. So it basically comes down to the same thing you hear from people who'll tell you, we should clearly go and build a moon base because the moon is covered in water and water is rocket fuel and we can go there and we can refuel on our way to Mars, which is plainly ridiculous because actually the water on the moon is mostly frozen slush laced with heavy metals. It's not rocket fuel. It has to be converted into rocket fuel via a very involved chemical process that is extremely energy intensive and there's no source of energy on the moon. And then even to get access to it. So even if you had a stage, a fully fueled stage, uh, a rocket stage full of fuel sitting there on the moon free for the taking, just the process of getting down to the moon to pick that up would consume more energy than you would gain from taking advantage of that. It's important to realize that at the end of the day, that the money, the fuel, the people, et cetera, all emanate from Earth and have to be distributed in that fashion. And that the only reason why really people strongly consider producing fuel on the surface of Mars is because the Starship needs about 1,200 tons of propellant and to refuel. And, and the process of transporting that propellant down onto the surface would take on the order of 10 to 15 additional starships worth of, of fuel, which is uh, substantially expensive, particularly if one wants to do this at a, on an ongoing basis. So that's the key thing there. Yeah. Okay. Do you really think, assuming that the moon and Mars were uh, equal size and equal distance, isn't the in-situ resources available on Mars arguably far in excess of what's available on the moon? Mars has carbon dioxide, yeah. more, plenty of water, in fact, arguably way more water than the moon and higher concentration. Oh, definitely. It's yes. just a few centimeters below the surface. So anyway, I don't mean to very yeah. carry on. So it's also the case that there's water and, and carbon here on Earth. That's how trees grow. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's trivial to convert those raw resources in the form that they occur naturally into rocket fuel. And in fact, it's very far from trivial. 
Uh, look, look, if we want to get into an argument here, it's not, it's actually fairly close to trivial in the sense that, for instance, Bob Zubrin showed that you can build a little reactor that sits on a desktop that makes. Uh, yeah, I have one. I have a hundred feet away. It's just through that wall. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's better than Bob's as well. Significantly better than Bob's reactor in the house has 98, 99% yield. I know quite a bit about the smart here process at this point. And what I'm trying to say is the, the key difficulty with doing this at scale on Mars is actually not even the chemistry because a sufficient amount of money can solve that problem is the energy. And in order to do this at scale on Mars, you would almost certainly need uh, either extremely large solar arrays, which have to be somehow deployed and and made safe on Mars. A small reactor. And the, no, not a 100 megawatt scale reactor. It's not a small reactor. It's yeah, the, the reactors that go into nuclear submarines are significantly smaller than the one you would need on Mars. And also astonishingly heavy and extremely labor-intensive. That's interesting. Okay, because that's, uh, I don't mean to divert you, so feel free to tell me to be quiet so you can get back to your slides. But having said that, Zubrin's Mars Direct program, the original one, yeah, had a, I think it's like a reactor that could be carried on that yeah. small. Yeah, and, and his Earth return vehicles the size of an SUV. So, so that, that's actually one of the things I alluded to, I think possibly before you joined the chat, which is that the, the prior conversations around the space never seem to take the return from Mars to Earth part all that seriously. They always focused on the difficulty of getting a hab down to the surface of Mars, which is definitely very difficult. Um, the Mars Direct Earth Return Vehicles 50-ton stack unfueled two-stage Methalox system, which is to be refueled by, I think, a 10, it's a 100-kilowatt reactor or something like that operating for two years, single shot. So yeah, tell me if you know where you can buy a 100-kilowatt reactor off the shelf. That'd be fabulous. And then the actual part of that spacecraft, which is the crew habitation vehicle, is never really described in, in vast detail in, in the Master Act literature and for good reason, because it's the size of an SUV. So you're essentially you're asking a crew of four to sit in, sit in this reasonably compact space capsule for 10 to 12, sorry, six, six eight months or so. Well, back from yeah, okay. That's a, is that a another thing there is that to some extent, the crew return was de-emphasized in Mars Direct, not only because of its difficulty, but because... The plan was to just keep sending people and building it up there and not take anyone. Yeah, for sure. And I've talked about this with Bob Zubrin as well. And and his argument in favor of that actually is that it is taxing and difficult to produce fuel on Mars. You actually do want to have a small ERV, as small as you can possibly manage it. And because it reduces the amount of fuel you have to produce on Mars. But actually the Starship program and the Mars Direct program are solving two different problems. So the Mars Direct program, which some of the people here will be familiar with, was set up to basically show that you could take four people to Mars and then bring them home as part of an ongoing program of exploration that would cost you on the order of one SLS launch per year. And actually the SLS design in some ways has its origins in that Mars Direct study. Sorry, sorry to ruin everyone. But if you look very closely at that architecture and say, okay, what would it take to, to scale that from four people every two years to hundreds of people, to thousands of people, to tens of thousands of people and their associated necessary shipments of stuff? The answer is actually you can never do that with an SLS style rocket, expendable rocket. You need a vehicle which is custom designed to land hundreds of tons of cargo on Mars per shot. And the Mars Direct plan had a couple of tens, like a couple of, sorry, on the order of single digit tons of cargo capacity on top of the rest of its system. And it also relied on, let's say a parachute system that no one who knows anything about parachutes is particularly optimistic about. It's not to say that it's physically impossible, but it's not optimized for delivering vast quantities of cargo to the surface. And so when I look at this problem, I say, okay, what is the technology stack that not only allows us to get a few people to Mars and back again, so we can say, hooray, we did it, but also allows us to, if we want to, drop a million tons and a million people on the surface of Mars in a short order, like a logistics delivery system. We're talking like Berlin airlift rather than... Does, um, does, is it the case additionally to dropping all this mass on Mars that in order to economically be feasible, it's got to eventually come back and be reused? No. So we talked about that before as well, which is that it's just, it's almost always easy just to make more stuff on Earth than to, to bring stuff back from Mars. Uh, the only thing that really is irreplaceable is humans. 
So you need the capacity to bring some humans back, obviously, even if only in principle. But in practice, I suspect that you know, 99% of starships that fly to Mars will go one way. And if certainly if you look at the way that they're producing it at Starbase right now, it seems to me that the production is not the constraint. Okay. There's actually, there's a whole bunch of really fascinating unsolved problems in this space. I just want to just go, go through them quickly and then and come back to the other major challenge that I expected quite a few cycles thinking about. But and just as far as the first book goes, I was talking about resources, energy, growing food, communications, hubs, spacesuits, little rovers, robots, operations, asymptotic reliability. So like basically making sure that stuff doesn't break down, planetary protection. And then chapter 22 was on extended stay and industrialization. And, and later on, someone was like, really, is that all you got to say about that? And I was like, no, actually, I don't. So I wrote a second book, which is basically how to industrialize Mars. And I'll drop a link to that in the chat here. So people can check it out again. That's also on, on Amazon if you want to ship me 10 bucks or something, but you can just get it for free here. The one thing I say is if you read the free version, it's in Google Docs. If you see something that's, you know, just leave a comment so I can fix it. So this one is mostly preoccupied with the question of autarky, right? So when, when Elon cash, casually tosses off a self-sustaining city on Mars, it's worth remembering that self-sustaining is something that we're not even sure that the largest nations on Earth can do with current technology. And it's impossible to live on Mars with less than current technology. Maybe something a bit simpler than current technology, but certainly at, at the current frontier, let alone a self-sustaining city, right? There's no city on Earth that's anywhere near self-sustaining, let alone a self-sustaining city on Mars, right? It's an absolutely staggering challenge to think like, how can you possibly do this with fewer than 100 million people? And how the hell could you possibly get even a million people on Mars and keep them alive for long enough to set up 100 or 1,000 factories to mass produce everything and to produce it faster than it breaks down in normal usage and to work around these like astonishing labor scarcity challenges, which should be caused just by the fact that they're keeping a human alive on Mars is, is yeah, noticeably more expensive than keeping a human alive even in a nuclear submarine or on an oil rig or in Antarctica or something like that. But I think it's a solvable problem. And I, I know that Elon and the SpaceX team think it's a solvable problem. Otherwise, they would not be trying. All right. well, well, Casey, having said that, quite an obvious yeah. question is why we do have people living in submarines and oil rigs. Those are good points. And in Antarctica, we haven't even settled or colonized the oceans and very remote places on the earth that are far more hospitable than Mars and easier to get to. You say you're convinced it can be done, but we have all this unoccupied, unutilized frontier on earth, arguably still. Yeah, for sure. There's no strong economic incentive to go and build a city on the bottom of the ocean. There's actually no strong economic incentive to build a city on Mars. But it's clear that one of these two things is captures the imagination and the other one seems dumb. Although I think Jacques Cousteau built a little lab out in the ocean and that was fun. But actually there are some important ways in which living at the bottom of the ocean is significantly more difficult for humans than living on the surface of Mars or in space. And it's just like the quantity of material you need to deal with like a thousand meters of water pressure, as we saw from the demise of the Titan submersible, is actually much more than you need to contain an atmosphere or half an atmosphere of air um, to the point that you could actually have, you could build a, a huge hub underneath a, a pressure suspended flexible membrane, a pressure connecting membrane on Mars. So you could actually have like natural daylight essentially throughout the entire structure. And you could throw these up more easily than a tilt up building. So you could enclose thousands of acres of land if necessary. Um, oh yeah. As this uh, pointed out, as this pointed out, unlike the bottom of the ocean, at least the deep bottom of the ocean, although the surface of the ocean is another question, but unlike the ocean depths, it's a 25 hour day. Like things are ready to go. Exactly. Yeah. 20, 24 and a half hour day. I think some people romanticize Mars and they think, oh, it's easy. It's a fixed around the planet. And that's definitely not the case. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's like, it's not much more hostile than say the summit of Mount Everest that hundreds of thousands of people 
visit for fun. And the thing is, you would, you wouldn't be doing your digging potatoes in a spacesuit, right? Like you you build essentially a huge terrarium, and and then try and do as much as you can inside that volume as possible. So, what are you currently focused on? And can we see your reactor? Yeah, I could actually walk you over there towards the end if if you want. We tweet photos of it every now and then, so it's not a secret. And if you're in SoCal, of course, Creon, you're welcome to come and visit. But the essentially, there's a chapter in this book about a synthetic hydrocarbon supply chain. And as I mentioned before, like the major obstacle, the major difficulty is getting the electricity input price low enough to make it worth your while to produce fuel. Because after all, like ideally, it would not cost you 99% of your city's GDP to launch one human home to Earth every two years, for example. And then I was cross-referencing that with a bunch of posts and stuff that I was reading since the early 2010s about how solar is on this trajectory to become insanely cheap and has actually, since that trajectory has essentially accelerated. Um, and no one, not a single person, successfully predicted 10 years ago how cheap solar would be today. The, the most crazily optimistic people missed it by a mile. And so I was like, what if we bolted these two things together and we figured out some way of making an ISRU system that instead of working on Mars, it works on Earth. And instead of being plugged into a nuclear reactor, it's plugged into a solar array. So it has to be able to turn on and turn off during the day, and turn off at the end of the day. Would we be able to make synthetic fuel in any great volumes? And I read the math and I was like, actually, we're within a few years of this being the cheapest way of making oil and gas. So 100, 200 years ago, if you wanted oil, you had to do the Moby Dick thing and get on a ship and sail half forever in the world and kill a whale and take its oil. And we slaughtered whales in the millions to get their oil. But it was never enough for more than a few relatively wealthy families to, heat, to light their homes, not even heat their homes with oil. Right? And then we discovered crude oil and powder refinement and natural gas and so on. But there's not enough, even if it was not a climate thing, there is not enough oil and gas in the crust to bring all 8 billion people up to anything like the standard of living that you and I enjoy. And it's not like that fuel's getting less scarce over time. So we have to find a new way, a new source of hydrocarbons. And it's not enough simply to electrify everything and have the best because most of our major hydrocarbon consuming industries, which include steel, cement, transportation, aviation, uh, fertilizers, and so on, have essentially unsolvable or currently unsolved um, chemical needs to use hydrocarbons rather than electricity. Yeah, we're getting pretty far off topic for a space group here, yeah. right? But, and right also, on. I want to start arguing with you, which I do. Sorry, I'm so, used, I'm so used in this room to pitching my own company. But yeah, basically, you're making synthetic fuel plants to make fuel on Earth. So is that what you're focused on right now as opposed to, yeah. uh, I see, okay, that makes a difference. All right, perfect. Very interesting, very interesting. Yeah, the idea of trying to make something self-sustaining on Earth is, is a, a good stepping stone to be sure. Fantastic, yeah. It's really interesting to even think of anything as self-sustaining. Like where do you draw the boundary other than even, even one's gotta be included. Well, like North Korea tried, it didn't work out well for them. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Ah, okay. Do you have any more slides or anything to show us? I have infinite documentation and stuff, depending on where curiosity lies. But actually, there is a chart somewhere. I'll see if I can find it. Essentially, in order to solve the self-sustaining problem on Mars, you need to start off by importing lots of stuff, probably in the order of 100 tons of cargo per person to support them and keep them alive. And people sometimes talk about, oh, no, we're going to run out of food. Or, oh, no, how are we going to reproduce in space? But actually. Food and people are two of the most high value things that you can easily import from Earth. If you think about the things that we produce, uh, the things that we consume on a per mass basis and on a per cost basis, by far, the, the highest volume things we consume are water. And that's one of the reasons why the ISRU people, ISRU people are saying, 
we have to get water uh, from local glaciers or something on Mars. And then if you work your way down, you have fuel and you have rocks, aggregate oxygen, other broad gases, and eventually you get down to the kind of annual consumption in the order of one ton or 10 tons per person per year. And, and obviously, if it's more than 10 tons per person per year, you really want to produce it locally if you can. And if it's less than that, maybe you can import it for a while, but long term, you want to stand up factories on Mars that can produce it for you so you don't have to import it from Earth. And so effectively, what that means is that you can import more people per ton of stuff that you transport from Earth or per, per unit transportation capacity, a greater fraction of that is people versus stuff. So instead of someone having, having to bring a lifetime supply of Portland cement when they immigrate to Mars, they only have to bring a lifetime supply of underwear or something like that. But actually food in terms of total consumption is less than 200 kilograms per person per year. So it's often on the left-hand side. And if you take into account the fact that food is relatively labor-intensive and difficult to make, it actually strongly favors when you immigrate just bringing like a 10-ton supply of pasta, like 10-year 10, 10 supply of pasta with you or something like that. That's actually relatively straightforward. And that's how we operate yeah. nuclear submarines, for example. Like said, you didn't die if you eat pasta straight for 10 years, but that's another matter. <laughs> take my chances. But like in, in practice, you can bring storable food. So uh, nuclear submarines in principle can actually stay underwater for, for many years. The reasons they do not is that, first of all, Navy sailors go a bit crazy after a few months. And the second reason, and, and, and they're in much, much closer quarters than, than anyone uh, on a, space, a spacecraft uh, on Mars ever would be. And the second reason is that they have a, a very large freezer, maybe eight times the size of the room I'm in right now, that when they leave is stuffed up to the ceiling with food and eventually they eat it all. And it's not really possible to produce food underwater uh, in a nuclear submarine. Okay, so this, this middle tranche of items in this chart, which are things that you could conceivably produce on Mars with inexpensive factories. So like we're talking fasteners, we're talking motors, we're talking steel, we're talking machine, like machine bits of steel, local processing. And of course, you have to have some prototyping, fabricating capability in case something that's you would ordinarily import, you run out of and you need to produce small volumes of it locally. And then over time, a small volume kind of custom production by hand would be formalized into a production line with automation and, and then scaled up. And the, the aim of the game is that you, maybe at the beginning, you have one guy who has a lathe and he produces yeah, bolts and screws and fasteners and, and nuts and, and, and washers and stuff for you. And then three years later, now he's running a small factory that's doing this. And he's still like a bit of hand involvement, but most of it's machinery. And then a few years later, it's still the same guy, but there's now a much larger factory that's producing all the fasteners for a base that's much, much larger. So in essence, the per person productivity increases in, at the same rate that the population increases, which allows you to expand into adjacent areas or expanding to adjacent um, industries and then continue to ramp up production there. And then on the far left-hand side of this chart, there are things like gold and morphine and flash memory and computer chips and, and stuff like that. And your lifetime consumption of these things is so low that you could conceivably bring a lifetime supply with you in your personal effects. And it would not substantially impact the bottom line as far as the per person allocation of cargo goes, right? So like you plus the stuff, your consumables needed to keep you alive on the way to Mars might be half a ton. And so you can quite easily sneak five kilograms of flash memory and computer chips and stuff into that allocation. And so there's actually never really a strong economic forcing function to produce things of that nature, which are also extremely difficult and labor intensive to produce on Mars. Although from an autarkic perspective, there's a good reason to try or at least to be able to produce some kind of chip, some kind of flash memory, at least relatively like a skeleton supply chain of things so that you can produce the automated production equipment that you depend on Mars, for example. Anyway, this is the sort of questions that I really love digging into. And it's why I just, I cry on the inside when someone writes a book about how to build a city on Mars and they spend, you know, 
40,000 words talking about space law and two words talking about supply chain. Anyway. These are those lower left things are the so-called vitamins from Neil Stevenson's seven eaves. Seven eaves, vitamins. Yeah. And, and actually, I think Jerry O'Neill used the same phraseology as well. Before we open it up to the audience questions, because it's getting near that time. Um, so I, funny question, Jerry. I want to ask one more thing, which is... Thanks. So economically, uh, Zubrin has his opinions, of course. Is What do you think? Is there anything that Mars can export of any value? And if so, what? Yeah, that's a good question. So actually, that first chart that I linked and then and it threw up covers that question. And the answer, the short answer is no. I have a blog post on this and it's more focused on the moon. But the problem is the thing that you want to export from Mars or from the moon has to be, if you're exporting it back to Earth, it has to be something that is extraordinarily valuable on a per kilogram basis. Like gold is borderline, right? It has to be something that's right. more valuable on a per kilogram basis than gold. Secondly, it has to be something where the supply chain on Earth truly sucks. Because if there's an increased demand for, I don't know, any of these like really high value, I'd just pick helium-3 as an example, for example, on, on Earth, you could improve the supply chain on Earth. You could increase production on Earth, decrease cost on Earth if there was a strong forcing function to do it. So it has to be something where you simply cannot do that on Earth, no matter how much money you have or you're prepared to spend. The supply chain on Earth really sucks. It needs to be something that there's a relative abundance of on the moon or on Mars, such that the complete lack of infrastructure and livable conditions on Mars does not matter, right? So that you can still produce it on Mars and you can produce and export it cheaply, more cheaply than you can possibly generate it on Earth. And this is really tricky because anything that's in demand on Earth, by definition, is a way of producing it on Earth, even if it's a bad way of producing it. And then lastly, it has to be something where the demand on Earth is high enough that the, the total revenue of this overall export operation is measured in at least billions of dollars per year, because that's kind of table stakes for operating a, a, moon, a mine on the moon or a mine on Mars, for example. So essentially, the number of things that kind of fall into the right section or the right quadrant of this chart is zero. There's, there's nothing. There's helium-3, something that's quite valuable, but the supply chain is really underdeveloped because the demand is really low, also because the price is low. Same goes for platinum group metals. People who say that, oh, we should just go out to this asteroid that is purportedly made entirely of platinum and bring that back to Earth as though that wouldn't crash the price, as though there's no price elasticity for platinum. Curious, it's a curious thing to say. So... Realistically speaking, what are the things that could do that? And if we look at Avatar by James Cameron, he got the right idea. Okay. In the first film, they went out to Pandora because it contained a naturally occurring high temperature semiconductor, like LK99, but for real. And that they could not produce on Earth, that only occurred naturally. And they were able to go out there and get it with their spaceships. And of course, that export process is infinitely more expensive than exporting from the moon or from Mars, but it's a story, right? Okay. But at least like they thought that through high temperature semiconductor. And actually it's arguable that even if you had LK99, what would you really use it for? There's some, so many applications, but it's, it's not certain that would become a trillion dollar industry, for example. And then in the second film, the most recent Avatar film, they, they moved to a slightly more stable footing, which is they found the elixir of life. They, 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 through the, the whaling sequence, of course, they were able to suck this out of the whale's brains because Jim Cam James Cameron again, but they found something that, that arbitrarily extended human lifespan. And I know that the Foresight Institute talks a little bit about longevity, and I know that it's something that preoccupies many of our thoughts. And it is not inconceivable that there could be something about living on Mars or living on the moon that extends your life. Um, but I'm actually, at this point, reasonably optimistic that we will find, a, for example, a small molecule drug on Earth that will basically have the same effect. And so it seems unlikely that there's any really strong reason to go and build cities on Mars or on the moon, except for they're cool and humans like to do cool things. Yeah, I 
have a ton of more questions on that. There are like a few uh, different new longevity companies that are trying to uh, gear up to do things in space, uh, even just to potentially create different uh, types of test situations to differently test interventions uh, on a different time horizon. Uh, but anyway, that's a, maybe a discussion for a different day. But uh, for now, we have a ton mm. of questions from Brad Neuberg. And then if we have time, I want to yes. get back to some of the stuff on mass outer gear again, because I think it's so thrilling. But uh, Brad, I've been waiting for here. so long. So yeah, Brad, you Brad, maybe pick your... Yeah. Okay. Why didn't you do that, Casey? <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I already read them. I already read them. Oh, okay. But they sure. questions. I was going to just pick okay. one, but that was just common. Okay. Yeah. I'm just going to go through them real fast. So overhaul mass Please. and return, what would I modify? I think that I would spend a lot more money improving down mass uh, through EDL on Mars, because if you can drop five tons or 10 tons on the surface, then uh, all the other constraints go away. And also learning how to do that feeds forward to future human development on Mars. I think in mass sample return, they, they basically jump through a whole bunch of hoops to try and avoid having to reinvent the ADL system and the consequence of those are now clear, everyone see. Most Mars-based planning seems to create fairly sterile environments. It seems like people living there would actually want to be surrounded by plants and life. Comes to sterile, how do they be accommodated? Mass, as some of the senior architects, including Paul Wooster at SpaceX, like to say, kills a lot of sins. And so if you're able to drop millions of tons of stuff on Mars, instead of talking about how do I set up my basically space RV and make that work, you can basically do away with the mass constraint. You can do away with the area constraint uh, and have very, very large areas. So I alluded earlier to, to building something like an inflatable mattress except at enormous scale, maybe future 100 feet tall, and you can grow nice. forests in there if you so desire. And because the amount of material you're using per unit area enclosed is maybe a millimeter of fiber-reinforced plastic that's anchored to the ground with kind of intermittent cables to stop it from all blowing away, then that's obviously, you have this insane labor constraint. You need to make it as easy as possible to work. The last thing you want to have to do is have these people walking around in gas masks or, or spacesuits trying to get their jobs done. You just have to create an absolutely enormous terrarium that people can spread out in and you can lay out factories on like on a single level and think like a car plant, like these absolutely enormous factories. And you've got to be able to basically arbitrarily increase the number of those. Absolutely. You have to put you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of acres of Mars underneath. Opinion of the MOXIE Mars in situ test that ran fairly recently is very cool. It's actually interesting. One of the major challenges they have there is they want to filter the dust out of the air that they're pushing into this system that breaks carbon dioxide into oxygen and carbon monoxide and then filters out the carbon monoxide. But it turns out that Mars's atmospheric pressure is so low that it can't actually force air through a HEPA filter. So you have to have a dust tolerance scroll pump at the, uh, that, that kind of boosts up the pressure and then can force that air with dust in it through a filter into a second stage clean, like dust-free pump system. And obviously using something like that. A large scale as well. That's the kind of detail that, that is awesome and none of these books talk about. Oh, yeah. Can I explain the next question just a little bit better than I, how I wrote it there? Yes. So in this one, I, so sometimes uh, at a certain stage of technology, people could forward the problem in a superhero way to make it happen, like building large, large structures like the pyramids using the pyramid structure and, and brick clay. But until you have lightweight steel, you can't build a skyscraper. So my question was, Yes. What would be some sort of breakthrough things that might shift the problem? You mentioned energy, having more energy always changes things. Transport. Are there some ways that might fundamentally transform the problem itself of a Mars colony? Yeah. And make it more realistic, yeah, sure. reasonable, livable, yeah, abundant. Yeah, I actually have a blog post on this. That's called Building the Mars Industrial Coalition. I can find it and just drop a link there. So uh, there's a whole series of pieces of technology that needs to be developed or improved. To make this work. And, and the argument in this is that Caterpillar should go and build some of this stuff so that SpaceX doesn't have to build it and then destroy Caterpillar's business, which would be pretty funny if they did that. But obviously the thing that people talk about, and this has some context with the Foresight Institute as well, is nanotechnology. So if you're able to do self-replicating robots, then essentially that problem of like, how do you do autarky goes away? Because instead of saying, right now you need hundred million people to have a, a sufficiently 
complex economy and in- industry to build anything. And you need to be able to build anything. You need to be able to build everything quickly and cheaply. Instead of saying, I just have this batter replicator and I just put it outside, eat some rocks and puts whatever we, yeah, puts out whatever we need. That would be super cool, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, that's science fiction and more science fiction than any other kind of practical things that, that might help out nuclear propulsion or much cheaper small modular nuclear reactors or fusion, fusion propulsion would probably help uh, reduce the uh, flight time quite substantially or increase the, the cargo capacity quite a lot. But the single largest piece of technology that, that did not exist and was not going to exist and even Mars Direct did not allow to exist was this fully rapidly reusable large cargo capacity yeah. spaceship yeah. To, to specifically designed for landing stuff on Mars and then flying back from Mars to Earth in one go. And that's what Starship is. And credit to yeah, the exactly. SpaceX who did the work on that. They figured it out. Once you can, once you cheaply can get to orbit, you solve so many other problems. Large enough. Yeah, if you can't get, if you can't lift a million tons to orbit per year, you cannot do a yeah. on Mars. No matter how hard you try, yeah. it is simply impossible. Unless you have the full matter replicator, self-replicating thing, and you can clone humans with it or something like that, it simply cannot be done. But if you have that, then it becomes a logistics problem. You've put logistics below the API, right? It's just a matter of make mass here, put mass there. Okay, and then. I think you had a comment about the difficulty manufacturing stuff in space, and I think that's certainly true. But I, I oh, yeah. The whole see. saga of Zeppelin and so on. We haven't even figured out low Earth orbit yet. Yeah. There, there's a number of business models that are extremely uh, lucrative in low Earth orbit, and Creon's involved in one of them with, with Earth observation. And then the other one, of course, is uh, and actually Brian, I guess, as well. But, and then the other one is, is tele- telecommunications, and that's the one where Starlink decided to go and, and make their fortune. And, and basically, as of now, has proven that out. But it, it could not be done without... It, it, basically, they could not do Starlink without basically owning an extremely cheap launcher and then also rewriting the rules on, on digital beam forming, which yeah. you know, they had to go and do. Yep. We have another question down there from Andrew, if you're done with the like, long, long list of, uh, of questions for now. And yeah. do you just want to uh, unmute and ask? Sure. Yeah, you just briefly mentioned also uh, great talk so far. Really awesome. Yeah, I'm just curious what you think about do nuclear thermal rockets really change the situation much given their performance envelope compared to if we just do all this with scaling chemical rockets? Is that the way to go? Or does it actually make sense to have some alternative propulsion investigation or development? Yeah, we can definitely do it with chemical rockets. And SpaceX recognized this as well. I think Elon's basically dead right when it comes to the rocket side of the equation. And the proof is in the pudding. Like his rockets have launched almost 400 tons of stuff last quarter into space, which is like a whole space station's worth of stuff in, in a single quarter. I think he's right when he says that when you have people on Mars, there'll be a much stronger forcing function for nuclear thermal propulsion and invincible, it can hit you about 900 seconds of specific impulse. And the reason that's so low is because we currently actually don't have a way of using nuclear fission to make extremely high heat. When we talk about nuclear fission as like this infinite source of energy, actually we're talking about is like steam that's so cold, it's barely steam. And yes, yeah, sure, it's, it's useful in some applications, but you, you can quite easily achieve flame temperatures in 1500 Celsius and above with natural gas and, and gas turbines. And that's what you use to achieve extremely high efficiency. Jet, jet engines and stuff like that, but we don't have anything like that for, for steam. And the same problem applies for nuclear rockets. So if you can figure out how to do a nuclear fission at uh, you know, 1500 or 2000 Celsius, then that's actually, that's enough to take humans to Saturn and back, which I think would be you know, the next obvious and very cool thing to do. But we don't need that, right? Like it is completely, like it barely even makes a dent in, in, in hydrocarbon supply to launch a million tons of stuff to Mars with Starship type propulsion. What do you think, Casey, about sort of a uh, derivative to this nuclear thermal or nuclear electric propulsion thing of uh, a big cycler that doesn't really land on Earth or Mars. It's still too yeah. stuff. Oh, well, I love Buzz Aldrin, and I hope he doesn't punch me in the face uh, for saying what I'm about to say. And, and the cycler is basically this idea, which is that um, it, it's basically a human factors solution. So, so the problem is that the humans will go crazy if they're stuck in Bob's Uber's Earth's return vehicle, which is the size of a large SUV in terms of its, its crew compartment. So what you should do is 
uh, is build these enormous cyclers which can travel between Earth and Mars, and then you, you sit in the, the shitty small rocket to get to and from each end. But the fundamental thing is you cannot ship hundreds of tons of stuff to Mars in a small rocket, and so you have to build a big rocket. Once you have a big rocket, the lot of that human factors problem goes away. And the other fundamental problem is that the cycler does not solve the delta B problem for you. If you want to move people and cargo from Earth to Mars, in order to catch the cycler, you actually need to use more delta V than you otherwise would just to catch up with them. And then at the other end, you, you essentially have to get off and then solve the EDL problem, which is the major problem. So essentially, it seems to me that you could spend vast sums of money building this enormous <clears throat> space station that flies between Earth and Mars, but its utility, essentially, it, it, it's difficult to use for the same reason that no one seriously considers transshipment of shipping containers in the open ocean. But you have to, first of all, you have to get up to speed anyway, and if you miss, you're dead. And then, and then you have to you know, transfer your, you and all your stuff from the shuttle to the cycler back down again. It, it may be the case that if we figure out how to do like short-range nuclear rockets or something, that, that you could do that. But you know, it seems like a, an idea that's a little too cool. I hope you don't mind me getting back to the North Autarchy book. I think it's, yeah, it just, it looks really fantastic. So I think it's really well concise written. And in that um, you lay out this kind of reusable 26-month development plan. And I think to that kind of like wraps up some of the resource uh, and key to technology sure. development bits that you talk about, I guess, a little bit before. Yeah. Uh, could you speak a little bit more to that? Like how would one uh, really do this 26-month cycle of like mass development? Yeah, I think I was getting a little over the edge of my skis when I wrote this chapter, just to be clear. But the idea there is that every 26 months, you get a new shipment of stuff from us, more people, more stuff. And so once after the four-week window is closed roughly and all the stuff has landed, you get to unpack everything and then deploy it. And the idea is that you, some industries, you're able to stand them up from scratch in, in 24 months, 26 months, which is the launch window cycle. And other industries, you would aim for each one of these steps, which kind of naturally break up the, the, the sequence of this operation to take a series of steps from prototyping to initial deployment to scaling to full automation or something like that. And so I went through each of the different subjects that I looked at here and, and talked a bit about which of them would go more quickly, which of them wouldn't you know whether you want to like immediately deploy new new pressurized volume and then expand into that volume or deploy as you go along and a few things like that. The it's a very interesting situation, right? Because imagine if imagine if like inflation, like monetary inflation occurred on us, but it, it occurred at 26 month intervals every 26 months money was worth half as much. as a little bit like the Bitcoin reward system humming every five years or something like that. That is the situation you find yourself in there because like on the surface of Mars, the, the previous crew of people, say you're on your way to Mars on like the 10th crew or something, the previous crew of people, who, let's say there's 10,000 of them, have just spent the last six months building your house for you. So you have somewhere to live when you arrive. And now you've arrived, the labor shortage has been severely abated. Oh yeah, there's a nice diagram. Mars window Gantt chart. Is it 26 months? I'm... Well, I haven't actually seen this in five years. That's going to strengthen my brain slightly. Yeah, yeah. It's basically talking about building these large volumes and, and setting up logistics and, and stuff like that. And this is not really a mystery to anyone who's built things at scale before. But I think the idea is once you get this concept, this process down to a science, you wash, rinse, repeat over and over again, and just keep improving it. And that's in practice. If you look at major industrial deployments, and, and I think the Berlin airlift is, is super insp inspirational in this case. Then. You could, that's basically how they did it, right? For about 18 months, they, they transported about 500,000 tons of, of cargo into Berlin, which at the time was isolated by the surface to prevent everyone freezing to death. And they, they managed it, but they, they did it through a steady and incremental improvement of their process over and over again. And this is in three and a half ton lots. Uh, the, the, the plates back then were not very big. So, and I know that we're nearing the end and we could talk about this all day long. And I really so much enjoyed digging into different pieces 
of you writing. And honestly, like the, yeah, the Mars Industrial Coalition, that is an absolutely amazing post that I had no idea that uh, exists yet. So thanks for sharing links here in the chat. Um, we're hoping that we put them in the show notes too. But in order to kind of come to somewhat of a wrap up, like what, why do you think we're not there yet? Like you, you lay out a few of the kind of like technical and like just kind of real politique like reasons and to some extent, but do you have any kind of like idea of what one could possibly do if we wanted to speed up, speed up the process to getting there or like the likelihood that we get there anytime soon? Like what, what are like a few levels that people can be pulled? Because most of it is pretty, like, as we saw, dependent here, right? Yeah, actually, the major resource we lack is time. And actually, I, I do sometimes wonder now if Elon will live long enough to make this happen. Because I think that if he died tomorrow, it probably would never happen. There are certainly plenty of other people who are passionate about Mars, as is everyone here. But no one else has successfully gone and built a rocket company to go and do it, right? Maybe Peter Beck would step into the gap or something like that. But it, it, I'm sure it would leave a gaping void. And Sex has a fabulous business without doing that. So maybe NASA would step up and pay SpaceX money to continue developing it, but it's not quite the same. It seems to me the major constraint on SpaceX's progress right now is regulatory, unfortunately. It yeah. people. And, the, and, and you mentioned passing planetary protection, there's that whole can of worms, and that's a regulatory nightmare, which undoubtedly they will deploy against Elon like they try to against everyone. I'm actually more optimistic on that front. I think space law is completely unenforceable and it's completely contingent on geopolitical desires and so on. And yeah, sure, if Elon, like, President Hunter Biden or something in, in 10 years' time decides he really hates Elon Musk, then he could deploy something like that to screw with him. But at the same time, it's important to remember that, that Elon Musk has his hands on an awful lot of levers of power. But the major obstacle seems to be regulatory at the more mundane at surface level right now, which is the second test launch of the Starship was delayed for three months by Fish and Wildlife being like, it occurs to us that your rocket launcher might harm a plotter or something like that. And I'm, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Like I'm a, a staunch environmentalist myself. I didn't start my company because I hate the environment. But at the same time, like there's a reason they went to build the SpaceX Starbase launch site in a forgotten corner of Texas that's entirely uninhabited and it's to stay out of people's way. And yeah, but he, he, he makes his point. Like Fish and Wildlife asked him to calculate the probability that he would drop a stage of his rocket on an endangered shark. This is ridiculous, right? On one half, we have a, co a company full of highly trained experts trying to build rockets to overcome the bounds of gravity. And on the other half, we have regulators who interpret their mission as needing to take three months to decide if a shark is going to get hit on the head by a piece of a rocket, right? Like just the, 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 there between the level of competence and the level of seriousness as far as approaching this mission is astounding. So obviously write to Congress people and get them to understand the, the importance and necessity of this vision. It's not about leading China, although that would be nice. It's about actually building stuff and, and getting out of the way. And then longer term, obviously, you feel free to look through that blog post on building mass industrial coalition and, and finding some of these unsolved problems. There's nine, nine key problems, air mining, water mining, rock mining, life support. There's building enclosures, spacesuits, robotics, automation, AI, all that kind of stuff. And if something like that appears to you, go and solve that problem or get astonishingly wealthy and then solve that problem. If SpaceX has to solve each of these problems serially, it's going to add at least 10 years to the timeline. So it's much better if Caterpillar was like, hey, what if we put 1% of our $4 billion per year R&D budget into building moon or Mars capable rovers. Yeah. Since they, they already have essentially automated hydraulic robots that operate in salt flooded underwater mines in Canada or something like that, which are actually far more adversarial than the surface of Mars or the moon. So like they're already most of the way there. They essentially just need to give it a different coat of paint and they could go. And then maybe well, the best employees and the best engineers will keep leaving them and go to SpaceX. Just as I do. I have to run. Well, I love that. No, go Thank for you, it. Just saying, I have to go. Thank you very much, Casey. Thank you very much, Allison. Thank you very much, everyone. And I'll talk yeah, to you. Yeah, thanks, Jared.
Casey, if you have another 30 seconds or so, I would love to hear. Usually we uh, mostly end this meeting with something that's like a call to action of like how people can help you. And I know that you already gave a general rally crawl right now of like how we can help get to space slash Mars like anytime sooner. But like in terms of just like very immediate what you got, what you're working on and how people can get in touch with you or how, how people can find out more about your immediate work. You do so many different things apart from just writing about this file space stuff. You have the company that you mentioned. So is there anything that you want people to know? Any like last final words, any call to action on Amazon level, how people can help you or get in touch with you. That'd be great. Yeah, thanks so much. First of all, thank you all for coming out and being part of this conversation and asking some interesting questions. Uh, it is a fascinating subject and I'm, I'm always glad to find that lots of people are thinking about it. I'm easiest to shitpost with on Twitter, frankly. Um, if you're on Twitter or X, depending on, on how you call it. Um, and I have an email address. It's not that hard to find. Uh, unfortunately, I'm extremely time limited these days. Um, so my ability to engage in like 10,000 word arguments by email is, is quite limited, but, but I'm always happy to chat on Twitter about this sort of stuff. And then depending on your skills and interests, there's an awful lot of related projects out there that need to be solved. It's not for everyone to go and work at Elon Musk's companies and work themselves to death trying to solve some aspect of rocket design. Some of us just come to it, myself included, but there's lots of other kind of related technologies that need to be done. And just in general, building business models that work in space is a huge first step. And I know a lot of the people here work at Planet. So like, maybe you should solve that problem soon. That'd be useful. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I also dropped a link to your Twitter here. And again, I'm hoping that eventually we'll have more time to dig into individual bits and pieces. But thanks for giving such a whirlwind of an overview about so many of the different pieces that you've thought about in that, in that space. And thanks everyone for joining for asking wonderful questions. Thanks for staying a little longer. I really appreciate it. And I hope to see you in person again very soon. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day. And it was wonderful to see you and see many of you at Vision Weekend this weekend. Yeah, it's coming up tomorrow. So bye, everyone. <laughs>